Hello and welcome to A New and Ancient Story. This is a podcast, a series of conversations, interviews, and occasionally speeches dedicated to the transformation of self and society. The basic idea is that we are moving from a story of separation to a new story, new for the dominant culture at least, of interbeing. What that means will become apparent as you listen to this series. We explore things like technology, spirituality, agriculture, healing, economics, politics, ecology, relationships, education, I mean pretty much everything that is undergoing a transition today as our old story nears collapse. If you want to engage these ideas more deeply, you can come to our website, charleseisenstein.net. Here we are with Dr. Edith Ubuntu-Chan, who is a doctor of oriental medicine. And we've been in sort of the same circles for a while, but I, I, heard, I heard you tell um, some stories that spoke to me really deeply because stories of the kind that you carry are a, a medicine for me because they remind me that I'm not crazy for believing that what is real and possible is a lot bigger than what we've been told. So thank you for carrying those stories. And before, like just a minute ago, you were about to tell me uh, that you were in Chinese medical school in 2003 and then, and then something was going to happen. <laughs> okay. Hi, everybody. <laughs> First of all, such a huge honor to be here. Um, some people read the tabloids and get like idolized, um, you know, celebrities out there. For me, the kinds of people that tune into a conversation like this, like you guys are my idols. Um, people that are willing to have these nuanced conversations. Um, I just love to live in a world where there's more of us, more, more people like you guys. So um, wherever you are in your kitchen, in your car, in your living room, I just want to say thank you for permitting me to be in your home with you to share this, what I hope to be a beautiful conversation. So the story that we were just about to share, back in 2003, I was still in Chinese medicine school. And one of the amazing things about Chinese medicine school, and sadly, they've tweaked the curriculum now. There used to be quite a lot of Tai Chi and Qigong practice in the standard curriculum. And gradually over time, I think they got more academic and there's less of those classes now, which kind of makes me sad because... The most profound thing I experienced during Chinese medicine school happened in Qigong practice. So this one day I was practicing Qigong and just loving it because I've been trying to meditate for a number of years. And when you meditate, there's always like, watch your thoughts come and go like clouds and see if you can let go. And, you know, I could never be still with my thoughts until I experienced Qigong. And it, in Qigong, for the audience that may or may not know a lot about Qigong, probably a lot of people do, Qigong is a practice where you attend to your breathing, attend to your thoughts, and there might be some physical postures involved, and your intention is to move the qi in a certain way through the power of your breathing, synchronized. So in this particular class, I was just blissfully and joyfully following this guided breathing meditation, one moment I'm feeling so peaceful, and the next moment, it's hard to find words to describe, but essentially 
this physical being exploded into trillions of pieces of love and light. Suddenly, I experienced myself the size of the entire cosmos. The feeling was so blissful and so beautiful. Really, to this day, I've never found words that properly describe it, but all I knew was that I was home. That's all I knew, that this is our natural state. In that moment, you can say I remembered that this is our natural state, and then this physical body that walks around and has to meet deadlines and pays the bills, that, that's all pretend. Suddenly in that moment, it became crystal clear. It was like this utter contentment, like every question I had ever had was answered and there was no question and there was just intense and complete love and bliss and joy and and I don't know how long that lasted but eventually the teacher's voice I could hear her voice from afar guiding a different part of the meditation and suddenly I remembered oh yeah there is that body maybe I should go back the experience of trying to squeeze trillions and trillions and trillions of pieces of love and light back into the physical body was so ridiculous that it was almost painful. It was kind of like this painful densification to get back to my body and just avalanches of tears just started coming out and coming out and coming out. And there were two things. It was like intense gratitude that I went home and I remembered who I actually was. And then intense sorrow, like intense grief that I had been living a lie. That this whole world is backwards and upside down. And um, yeah, that the good thing is after that, both I went into a very intense dark night of the soul and it turned me into the seeker. And I started reading thousands of books. I came across so many beautiful books and traveling around the world, studying with different kinds of teachers and healers. And I just started having this insatiable appetite to learn truth, to reconcile if that is our natural state. Well, why is there war and famine and, and all of this living in the state of separation? How did that happen? And how can we, is it possible in the physical world to embody that, that intense feeling of connection and oneness and love? Is it possible to actually live that? And for the first couple of years, I just kept going into meditation, honestly, to escape the stresses of this world. And yeah, it, it ended up taking quite a number of years to start to feel like, wow, there is the possibility through little little moments and little ways that we are changing and transforming how we're living in the society that yeah maybe there's hope for us to live that state while in the physical realm wow thank you for sharing that mm. i've uh, practiced quite a bit of qigong i had a wonderful practice that i had to discontinue because i um moved away from where my teacher was I'm, I'm really interested in, in an experience like that. 
how do you integrate it into life and not just put it in the category of spiritual experience? You know, like how do you reconcile life in the matrix with that taste that you had of life outside the matrix? And, and how does it, is it just a memory? Is it, can you feel that state still within you, alive inside you? Um, I mean, you said it launched you on a period of trying to reconcile that in your mind. Like, how could the world, if this is what's true, how could the world be the way it is? Um, well, um, in those initial days, this was 2003, the internet wasn't how it is now. So honestly, it was difficult. It was super lonely. I went to metaphysical bookstores and just read every possible book, possible book I could. And um, I just kept going back to meditation to escape this world, like half a foot out the door kind of thing. Like I, I didn't really understand why I still had a body. And, and gradually over time, I started just getting practical, like, okay, so I have this body. There must be a reason. Why don't I stop escaping the physical reality and start understanding it more deeply? And so a lot of, a lot of little small answers started coming to me. And I had mentioned in our previous conversation, I'm a big fan of Byron Katie's The Work. And doing that inquiry practice, um, which I think is easy for people that have heard of Byron Katie and the work, it's easy to look at it from a superficial perspective, but if you ever attend some of her multi-day long workshops, it goes really deep into inquiry about the nature of reality. And a lot of those insights that came through that kind of inquiry practice really helped me to, to deepen this understanding so that I thought, okay, well, on some level, this physical reality is still, is an illusion, but I could choose to make the most out of it. What if I came here to learn and grow? Am I taking maximum advantage of this time to learn and grow as much as possible until I let go of this physical body, you know? And um, a lot of studying about um, people that have had near-death experiences mm -hmm. really helped me deeply. and. Um, recognizing that when we cross over to the other side, we'll look back and not only will we look back from our vantage point, I'm sure you guys and your audience members might've heard about this, that the NDE experiencers talk about how when they cross over into the light, they experience their whole lives in a life review, not from their perspective, but from everybody else's perspectives. And I think what a beautiful way to live if we choose to bring that kind of awareness of that, that not interconnection, but interbeingness, as you say, into how we live everyday life. Maybe that's how we crack the code of the matrix. Mm -hmm. I, I don't know if, if everybody in the audience for this is that familiar with NDEs or even believes that they are authentic. Um, you know, a lot of people come in because of, you know, my writings about climate change, you know, or economics or something like that. And, and I guess part of my um, intention in doing this podcast and in and all of my work actually really is to broaden the scope of radicalism 
because like there are people who might be politically radical, but still very unthinkingly accepting of uh, reality as science narrates it to us. And there are other people who might be very, very spiritual, et cetera, but they don't have any clue about the way that foreign debt maintains colonialism and extracts resources from the global South, you know, just to give a couple examples. So I appreciate, you know, you going into the, that topic and I'm trying to speak to so many people at once. There's always part of me that's like, okay, if I go there, like with whom am I going to lose all credibility? Uh, you know, and I get feedback like that. Sometimes Charles, you know, you had me up until you started talking about near-death experiences or until you started, you know, talking about UFOs in anything but a dismissive way. So I, to turn this into a question, what else, when you had that experience and thereafter maybe, um, maybe you, you had other experiences too that violated self and reality as you had understood them before. How did this change your life in practical ways? Like in ways that, you know, aside from what happens in a metaphysical bookstore, like as far as like how you actually practice your work, how you relate to other people, uh, how you live your life, like is, are, are there, did it bleed over into uh, those areas? Well, I'd like to say I woke up one day and I was like, everything was fine and dandy and I was enlightened. It was so not like that. And it, it's, it's a constant, what I perceive to be a lifelong practice. So this one experience kind of woke me up to a whole different dimension of possibility. And then the real work is on a day-to-day -day basis. I would say the most prominent thing is after that happened, a lot of people that have these types of experiences also share the same experience that their intuition skyrockets. Mm. And there's an inner knowingness and an inner compass that almost got installed within you that your tolerance can you say bullshit on your podcast? <laughs> tolerance for yeah. I, I don't know. The FTC might get, get me in trouble. <laughs> your tolerance for BS is just, is, is gone. You just, you can't, and your, your inner compass for speaking your truth and living more authentically is so much more heightened. So I found myself unable to lie. I found myself to just feel more almost like physically sick when I'm in a situation where the situation didn't feel harmonious to me. And so this, this body, and I came to see after a number of years, this body became kind of like um, a super biocomputer lie detector, lie detector test, where I couldn't physically be in these situations that didn't feel harmonious anymore. And so gradually, friendships, how I choose to start a business, the people I do collaborations with one by one by one. It just took a number of years for that to unfold based on that inner compass. Mm -hmm. And if you, um, if you were going to give a message to your pre-experienced self, if, you know, 2002 or to, those of us who have not had an experience of such intensity, uh, what, what, what knowledge would you want to share? I struggle with that because it was perfect the way it was. Hmm. 
And some of this is informed by, so I have two kids. I have um, a five and a half year old and a baby who's seven months old. And the five and a half year old loves to share at bedtime. We just talk about things. How was your day? And a lot of times he shares everything he remembers about before he jumped into my belly. Wow. He shares beautiful stories about what he remembers. And sometimes so sweet, it just makes you want to cry. You know, he says, Mama, when you, when, when I, he calls it, when I was in space before I jumped into your belly, and he talks about how I was also in space with him before I jumped into my mama's belly. And then he said, I waited and waited for hundreds of years before I could jump into your belly. Because I love you so much, too much, too much. And so he shares all these beautiful things about all that he remembers from, I guess we can call it the spirit realm before he, he merged with the physical form. Um, one of the things recently he was sharing with me was that from that space, the spirits can look upon the earth and scan and find their perfect set of parents. That in fact, every soul does this scouring mm -hmm. the cosmos, finding the perfect planet, then finding the perfect beings to be your parents, and is so precisely chosen. And so he shares with me what he remembers from how it feels. Recently, I've been asking him not just the facts, but what did it feel like to be in space? And one of the things he said was, you know, we can see that on planet Earth, People are happy sometimes, sad sometimes, cranky sometimes, impatient, they're tired. And I said, do you feel all those same feelings when you were in space before you jumped into my belly? And he said, no, we can't feel all those feelings. We only feel happy. And then sometimes if we're trying to talk to our future mamas and babas and they can't hear us, then we might feel a little bit sad, but we don't feel angry. We don't feel cranky. We don't feel lonely. We don't. He goes on with all these feelings that we have in the human realm. And in that space, you don't know what that feels like. They could only see that humans have what appears to be these experiences. So I said, is that why we come here to feel all those feelings? And he says, yeah, that's one of, one of the things. We want to come here to see what that feels like. And this is a five-year-old sharing this with you. Yeah, that's amazing. So, you know, I just, I gather bits and pieces like that. People reporting what they experience in an NDE or, um, you know, different teachers. It's just like the pieces of the puzzle, just thousands, maybe trillions of pieces of the puzzle starts to come together to make me stop resisting this life. That this is... I've come to the conclusion, maybe it's just an illusion of a story, but it's one that's working for me. This idea that, yeah, our natural state is this infinite peace and love and light. And we came here to learn and experience certain things so we could resist it, or we could just go deeply into it and take maximum advantage of this opportunity to learn and grow and feel all the diversity of feelings the heartache, the, the grief, the intensity of all of our human experiences. Maybe we came here for that. And in fact, if my boy is accurate, he says that space is teeming with 
baby souls that are all there's there's this huge wait list of people trying to come here because Mm. earth is such a rich place for learning and growth right now that everybody wants to come here wow so it's like you won the cosmic lottery to get one of these lifetimes and one of these amazing human body biosystems Take maximum advantage of it. Don't squander it. That's how I feel about it now. So in that way, that Mm. helps me to really get excited about embodying the state of love and light, that, that, that infinite possibilities and embody that into this current lifetime as fully as I possibly can. Mm. I'm I'm just thinking now about all the, ways that I have and haven't done that, you know, all the things I do to uh, avoid fully feeling what there is to feel here. Sometimes I I get uh, just, I, I guess it's kind of an empathic connection to the horrors and trauma happening on earth. And, you know, I mean, what, what, what's happening on this planet, just beggars belief, the things that human beings do to each other and to the earth. And like, there's part of me, it's like, I want to do something about it. You know what I mean? It's like, there's part of me, it's like, yeah, I'll enjoy life after I do something about it. This isn't all of me, but there's a, a voice that, you know, like I, I, I know people who are just very, very good at enjoying life, you know, and they have no problem sampling the best wines, you know, and just like really going to all of the festivals and, and getting, you know, the best espresso beans and the best espresso maker and and the new iPhone, you know, and just glorying in this, all these wonders and I'm like, but do you understand this iPhone was made from rare earth minerals that were mined from the Congo rainforest? Like, do you understand what this is built on? Like, I, I, can, I can deal with this philosophically. Like, I have an answer to my own question. But there's some part of me that is in distress over this that the philosophy can't touch. And I wonder if either your son or your own experiences have given you any, any, like, how do you navigate those voices and, and the, the, you know, the imperative to be of service and to enjoy life and to take full advantage of this tremendous opportunity to feel all of the things available? Well, I think that there's a secret encoded into into our physiology because my subject is health and wellness you know that's what i do for a living for two decades now and um and coaching a lot of people i realized that that if something doesn't feel right within us it's because that is supposed to be part of our life mission mm-hmm. that is the activism that we're that we've chosen to do in this lifetime And so if somebody else seems to be fine and happy going about their business, maybe it's not their life path because we are here to not, it would be too overwhelming if we experience everything all at once. Mm -hmm. 
we came here to slow it down to densify ourselves so that we can kind of do one thing at a time experience and go deep into one portion of reality at a time and the portion of reality that maybe is your responsibility to be part of is the one that bothers you mm-hmm. so i would say um maybe it's the other person is not necessarily their business is your business if it bothers you you know that's that's the first first thing that comes to mind and um if you share with me in a way that is without guilt, but with love, with kindness, with respect, with compassion, then I might feel excited to, to join you on your mission. And so that guilt, I'm just aware that guilt doesn't really serve the highest good. Yeah, it's not so much that I'm in judgment of people who live that way. It's more that I'm envious of them. You know, it's like, well, why can't I do that? <laughs> You know, I, here I am, 52 years old, you know, and I know people who have, you know, beautiful house by the sea, you know, I, people have, have like all these, like, things that, that their money has gotten for them because they made that a priority. And it's not like, oh, they're doing it wrong and I'm doing it right. It's more the other way around, actually. So, um, one of my many explorations after 2003 is doing past life regression hypnotherapy sessions. Mm. And I relived many interesting lifetimes where I have been all these different types of people. And that really helped me to make peace. And um, the audience out there, I apologize, forgive me if this is going too woo-woo. All I know, I don't know if past lives are true. But I do know when I did a series of past life regressions, it helped me just experientially to feel that, yeah, I came here to live this lifetime as a person named Edith, who is female, who is going to practice Chinese medicine, and that, that I'm, I'm at peace with the fact that this is the fragment of reality I'm, I've chosen in this lifetime to fully experience. And that in different lifetimes, I have been the you know, the person with the yacht. And, you know, the reason that that life's not interesting to me is because I have already experienced some of those experiences so fully that it became uninteresting. And I came here to this lifetime to live a more um, nuanced perspective. Yeah. I I very much resonate with with your explanation there. Um, I, I also often say that really our only responsibility is to live the lives given to us as beautifully as possible because our purpose here is in fact to participate in the universe's coming alive and coming into greater and greater beauty. And we're all put in the perfect circumstances to make the unique contribution to that unfolding that is available in those circumstances. And yeah, it's not just a philosophy, you know, it's, when I feel into it, I know that it's true. But yeah, still so many questions. I wonder if after I die, if they'll all be like obvious, if they'll all be resolved. Maybe, I'm not sure. But I think when we encounter all those different situations, the people that are, um, the people that are say in a yacht or drinking wine or whatever, they're there to show us these different facets of the infinite possibilities and then we can see oh i'm drawn to that i want to be like that or maybe on a deep level we 
we kind of somehow remember like, oh, I remember when I had a lifetime like that, but that's not this one. And like a, a, a yeah. sweet kind of soul memory comes up alive for you where you say, thank you for reminding me that, that on the deeper level that I have experienced all these facets and this is the time I'm choosing to experience this version of reality. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm just feeling into the feeling of envy, you know, and, and I think that the, uh, the, the spiritual message within envy is that it is a, uh, it is a reminder of something that I'm not acknowledging that I want. And it doesn't have to be that I actually want a yacht, but there's something that that person is trying to teach me by the way that they live their life. I have a theory that everybody actually has something to teach me by the way that they live their life. It's not always or usually a direct teaching, like you should live it like I do, but there's something there. There has to be because I think that we're that like these souls you described that are, that are looking for the perfect parents and the perfect circumstance. Part of that perfection is that they're living that life on behalf of all of us. Yes. And why does that person come across my radar screen instead of somebody else? It's part of the uh, orchestrating intelligences operating in our lives, I think. When I heard you on uh, another podcast, you told this story of, about a, a dark room retreat. And I, it was funny because I had just become interested in that through somebody else who did this retreat in Thailand. It might've been the same place you did. Yeah, probably. Yeah. And I was very, very attracted to it. Um, like to the point where I'm like, if we move, I'm like, I want to move somewhere where I can build something like that and, and do it. You I know come? what I mean? <laughs> can I move in too? Yeah. It's, um, it's such a rich and beautiful and I'm going to use the word delicious experience. I was very surprised by that. So I'll just share with the audience. Um, in 2013, um, I was drawn to this meditation retreat. It's hosted in a retreat center called Tao Gardens, which is built by Mantak Chia. He's a quite a famous Qigong teacher. And he has a lot of dark room retreats that he hosts in that building too. But the retreat that I felt most drawn to, to attend was another meditation teacher named Jazz Muheen, who's from Australia. She's a very soft and sweet and feminine woman. So the energy is quite different. And so she's in the same building. That is, it's the same building which she runs out and she hosts this retreat. But the practices, the energies of it is quite different than what's offered by Mantak Chia. So everybody has to find what works for them, of course. I just felt so drawn to the way that Jasmuheen has such a soft and feminine and sweet energy. And so the way the retreat works is, is 11 days, nine days and nine nights in complete darkness. So this is a building that Mantak Chia has built very lovingly and very precisely to mimic the ancient dark cave experience like a yogi or a qigong master meditating in a dark cave. The bricks of this building is pressed using the soil of that local earth. So wow. that it's like almost like a, a cave that is natural to the mineral content of that environment. But 
It also has running water, electricity. In the perimeter of the building is all these really nice, almost five-star type bedrooms. So it's very luxurious. There's no snails or scorpions or bats to, to, to contend with. Um, so you can stay in these bedrooms on the outside and in the center is a meditation hall. So when you first go there the first night, the first day you get acclimatized to the building and some people bring blindfolds so that they can get used to navigating the building without their physical eyes. And then that first night lights out after that nine days and nine nights of complete darkness. This building, all the windows are blocked off, so not one photon of light can enter, but there's still ventilation coming in and out. So the air is good, but the, the, they cap all the, the windows so that the light cannot come in. I'm curious how you would get air but not light in, but I don't need to know the details right now. Yeah, they, they, yeah. they build a way in which they can put a big cap over the, the windows, so there's, there's airflow. It's, uh -huh. Yeah, that's... That's why dark room retreats are not totally easy to set up. Right, yeah. The building has, I think, four or five layers of dark curtains. And then the staff of the retreat center wear night vision goggles to come in and service the, the building. They clean it and um, they deliver. In the case of Mantak Chia's retreat, they have a very specific diet that is recommended but in Jasmuhin's retreat everybody just were offered water and juices so the first night lights out and then nine days and nine nights of complete darkness the first thing that i noticed that was so profound was i have been hungry for darkness all my life and i didn't mm -hmm. It was the best analogy I can make is if you have been breathing kind of polluted air in a polluted city, like maybe Beijing or Shanghai or something, and then suddenly somebody goes boop and teleports you into a beautiful redwood forest or rainforest somewhere where there's a lot of oxygen and chi and prana in the air and you go. <sighs> I had no idea air was so nutritious. Mm -hmm. Same with the darkness. I had no idea darkness was so nutritious. I lived in cities all my life and I just had never actually experienced complete darkness. And so yeah. the first two or three days I rested, my body rested like it had never rested before. So deeply restful. And then after about the third day, I was fully rested and I didn't sleep for days after that. And so the biochemistry. The person I met who, yeah, the other person I met who went there and slept for like the first five days also. Yeah. Boy, I mean, it's just so appealing to me. <laughs> so they say that you saturate your system with melatonin because of the darkness. And once it's saturated, your body starts making consistent doses of DMT, which many people do different um, plant medicines and different, it's called endogenous versus exogenous DMT, right? People take exogenous from outside in DMT to have this experience, but here is kind of the opposite. You're tapping into your innate ability to make that medicine from the inside out. So the experience I had was that it was like a gentle ramp up into that visionary state. Mm. It just got deeper and richer and deeper and richer. And then because my body was so deeply rested, I didn't feel to sleep. And I'd never had this experience of meditating around the clock like that. 
that there's like a synergistic exponential growth that happens in the depth of your meditative state that um, with each and every time that I wanted to sit in meditation and gain some clarity about something. And like normally where it takes a long time for that insight to come. And when it comes, it comes in a state of kind of uh, inner knowingness or maybe mm -hmm. a physical feeling of, ah, that's truth. You feel mm -hmm. it in your body. But in the dark room, all of that is accompanied by this 3D omnivision, you know, technicolor visual experience at the same time. And there's a really wonderful kind of confidence that I didn't realize I would have. That that, that wasn't some outside in force that that was generated from deep within myself. That was an inside out experience. Um, many things happen. Remembering past lives, seeing into future lives, connecting with many um, wisdom keepers and teachers and seers and one of one of the really powerful traditions you know the ancient yogis did this dark room the ancient qigong masters the egyptian alchemists are known for doing some kind of a dark meditation but also the kogi mamas in yeah. colombia they their their teachers and seers are raised <laughs> in the tradition of a dark cave meditation so what i what i gathered from it is that after a number of days, it wasn't a philosophy or some kind of a dogma, but it was my actual experience. So what I experienced was that the non-physical reality became my dominant reality. Mm. And I experienced the physical reality as if it's just a layer that is superimposed on top of the non-physical energetic reality. And so going back to your first question, that really helped me to feel like it reoriented the correct way, I, I guess. Mm -hmm. Because our, our world says that everything is physical and that consciousness is some kind of like a byproduct of a brainwave state. But right. in dark room, it's not even a philosophy, it's your direct experience that, that reality really is this non-physical consciousness feel and that that can manifest through the attunement of your thoughts and your intent into specific energy patterns and then into the physical reality. Mm -hmm. And so I just felt like my reality got lined up correctly by it. Mm -hmm. Do you, were you able to like do things that, you know, involved physical material reality that had been, um, that would be considered impossible when, you know, when we think of reality as something outside of ourselves, like. Plus I started seeing the aura and energy field of all the objects. It took three, four. So I should caveat this by saying um, the audience that are feeling really drawn to this kind of retreat. I just want to point out that everybody has a different experience and please don't allow my stories to limit your experience. Right, someone could have a totally like- You could have yeah. a totally different experience. Right. This is just mine, you know? And everybody has the perfect experience. They, sh they get shown or they, they have all kinds of experience that is exactly perfect for them, but wouldn't be anything like mine. So please keep an open mind. Um, one of the early things I experienced after I started waking up from sleeping so deeply and just, oh my God, I'm so well rested, is I started seeing gradually more and more clearly the aura that was um, 
radiating from all the objects. And so I was able to navigate quite easily after a while the building and that, um, that there's, I just experienced that the energy field is my reality in that, in that space. You know, and I was able to see, okay, here's the bed or the chair and this kind of rounded energy field. This is clearly the bed of the chair. And then I would put my hand there and then I could feel the physical object. So it's like the energy was primary and then the physicality of it was like secondary in my experience. I have another example. Another example is Jasmuheen, every day she would ring a bell and then you'd have about 15 minutes to gather in the meditation hall if you choose to, or you can stay in your bedroom. You choose to gather with her, she would lead these different meditations and self-care practices. So I love that every morning she started, she would ring the bell and then we would gather and she would guide us through this beautiful exercise of giving thanks, giving gratitude and appreciation for our physical body. And that sounds super simple, right? Oh, thank you, body. I'm, I'm grateful for you. No, we spent hours and really taking your consciousness into nooks and crannies. I have no idea how long these practices are. I just noticed that after she's done with it, I got into a space where I just kept going and going and going. There's so much richness and depth to a simple practice of gratitude for your physical body. And so taking your consciousness into all the nooks and crannies of your physical body, talking to it, cultivating a deeply loving relationship with your body. And um, in that space, she would guide you to talk to your body and ask it, what is your prana percentage? So that's her language for talking about how Maybe some of the audience have heard of this concept of breatharianism, this idea that certain yogis or qigong masters can cultivate their state of well-being, so much energy, so much chi, so much prana that they hardly even need to eat physical food. Now, full disclaimer, um, because I do have a medical license, friends, please don't test this for yourself, but, but this is an example of things that really open my perception of reality. Because in that deep meditative state, when I talked to my body, I got this very deep, confident, peaceful answer of you are at this moment being 100% nourished by chi, by prana. And so day by day, I just chose not to take the, the juices, you know, just water. And I felt amazing. I didn't feel like I was fasting, like sometimes I've done fast in the past. I felt deeply nourished. And so she calls it source feeding, that you're being deeply mm -hmm. nourished by source in that state. And, um, and every day, day by day, cultivating this relationship with my body, I started realizing, wow, this is profound. This is actually the, the fundamental thing that we all need to be learning and cultivating. That as a side effect of having this deep, loving communication with our bodies, then we can even ask the body to do anything. I came to realize that so many of us, we are kind of not aware that we even have a body until it breaks down. And then suddenly you want your body, hey, body, um, darn it, I don't have time to get sick. I need you to get better fast, right? That's a bit like somebody from the street barging into your house saying, 
hey, I'm going to order everybody around. You do this, you do that, and where's the money and all this. But there's no relationship there. And so I realized it wasn't at all a small thing to cultivate a deep and rich relationship with our physical body that is based on love and and daily, if not moment by moment, communication. Mm-hmm. Again, I resonate strongly with that. And I'm probably one of those people who doesn't, you know, spend much time with his body and except when I get sick. And in fact, one of the things I've experienced after serious illness is a kind of an intimacy with myself. Yeah. And I, and I decided maybe if I pay more attention to my body, I won't have to get sick because I won't have this deficit of this type of intimacy. Yeah. And, and, you know, with Darkroom, because it was really the most profoundly beautiful experience of my life, possibly, that it really helped with this lockdown situation that we have right now. Because many people feel really stir crazy by the lockdown. And, you know, I love to, I love to go to friends' house and hug them and have a party and be free. And especially with kids, I definitely want them yeah. to have access to the playground and to friends and all of that. But on a deep level, it gave me a kind of freedom that nobody could ever take away after that experience. This freedom that if you locked me in a dark cave by myself, that even in that kind of a restricted environment, the most beautiful experience could be possible. Because through our minds, through our consciousness, through our inner cultivation, there's no place that can't go. And in dark room, once you get deep into the meditative state, we, I, I experienced myself taking my consciousness. I could see what was going on outside the building. I could experience mm-hmm. all different dimensional things and, and tune into uh, the wisdom from past lives and many things. So this indescribable state of freedom that is possible while <laughs> you're apparently locked in a dark cave, you know? Yeah, so you're, you're bringing up a lot of threads that I would want to follow in different directions if we were uh, not limited by linear time. Like I'd like to talk about all of them at once, but I'll maybe just go into some and you can see what you want to pick up on. Okay. Um, one is like breatharianism, which I, I have met, I think, two people in my life who I had good reason to believe were breatharians. The one I remember the best was a Qigong practitioner who worked in the Penn State Material Science Laboratory. Someone introduced me to him because they knew I was interested in the phenomenon, but he was in no way advertising the fact that he hadn't eaten food for two years. And his Qigong teacher had told him it's not even a big deal or a sign of high attainment. It just happens sometimes. Don't let it get to your head. And if you get hungry, start eating. And he hadn't eaten for two years. And he looked totally normal. Uh, And he didn't seem like especially enlightened or anything. (laughs) <laughs> and like he had just no reason to try to lie to me, you know, just none. And, and I know that there are also historically a lot of well-documented cases. And, and then when you go into it, then you discover some of the most well-known advocates of breatharianism. Turns out that they get, you know, secretly videotaped, like eating, you know, chicken McNuggets somewhere. Yes. And, and like there's, 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 there's that. Uh, and like when I've, you know, done fasting, it's been a disaster for my body. 
Like I lost muscle that I never got back again. And I had these ideas about cleansing and this is, you know, 20, 30 years ago. Um, Krishnamurti called it the first and last freedom, I think, meditation. Um, and I had a feeling of that invulnerability in a way also until this was about three years ago, I got a toothache that like in theory, you know, I can command my attention and I like, but in when it, when it really got bad, I mean, my, my entire existence was pain and there was no practice, no teaching. I mean, nothing that could mitigate it, you know, it just like obliterated like pretty much all of my, my metaphysical beliefs because it was so consuming, you know, it didn't matter what affirmations I did, what beliefs I professed to have, what, you know, childhood wounds that I explored. I mean, nothing. And eventually I almost died actually, you know, I, I, it was this whole saga. And it's one of those things, it did feel like an initiation, an initiation into like metaphysical uncertainty maybe, and into whatever is true is so much bigger than my mind can ever make sense of. Um, but I feel a little bit at the same time, I feel a little bit scarred by the experience or a little cynical, you know what I mean? Like, yeah, nothing else mattered. Like I, you know, I couldn't take pleasure in the sight of a loved one's face, for example. And it was just endless. How does that fit in to what you know? Uh, it's, you know I don't think about it often now. It's kind of in the back of my mind, you know, but it's like now it's coming up. Like, yeah, can you offer me anything? Well, I don't want to pretend like I have all the answers to the universe. I'm just here figuring it out too, you know. Um, but that's, that's a big experience. And there are many small experiences that we all live every day of pain and suffering that have the opportunity to put us in a state of empathy and compassion. Because it's not a theory, it's your direct experience. You've experienced some intense suffering. So when you're in the, in the space of someone going through that, you're not going to be high and mighty spewing you know spiritual philosophy right right? like you will never do that now right that's true experience that and and there's nothing more beautiful than being with someone and holding space and permitting them to go through their journey at whatever pace is right for them yeah and i guess one thing i learned also is that it doesn't last forever like one way or another, it was going to stop. Either I was going to die or, you know, I mean, I mean, it lasted many weeks, but, and, and there are people who are in chronic pain for years. So like, I'm not, you know, dialed that high on the level of pain and suffering, but even if it's years, someday it, it is over. And I'm pretty sure that the default state of existence is what your son describes, bliss. And that, that all of these human experiences that we have are excursions away from that, that end up enriching the, the bliss itself. Why, why does your son, like, I'm curious, he said that people, these souls go to planet Earth to experience all these feelings. 
why do they want to experience all those feelings? I don't know. He went out bike riding so we could have a quiet oh. house. So I'll have to ask him tonight. Okay. Yeah. I'm curious about that. Hmm. Well, maybe backtrack a little bit the backstory. So my husband and I are, um, are, we have always considered ourselves earth loving beings that don't want to be here polluting and ruining the planet. And so we thought our contribution might be to not have children. Mm. Until after that dark room retreat, my intuition skyrocketed yet another level after that. And so I became so sensitive to energies that I dragged my husband and we moved out of the city an hour away into the countryside so I could drop into that sweet, deep, peaceful state where it is completely dark at night, where I could spend tons of time in nature. And being in that environment, so many things, wonderful things happen. Um, one of which was my meditations got much deeper on a consistent day-to-day -day basis where everyday insights and a lot of um, messages would come through. And our boys started visiting in my meditations and dreams day after day, month after month. And I kept sharing with my husband and he's like, I'm not ready. I don't, I don't, we're not ready to have children. We have no money, you know, but he kept showing up. And, um, and then one day, I was in a half-wake, half-dream state, just lay in bed, about to fall asleep, and he shows up, and it turned into a three-way kind of cosmic powwow that we had, my husband, myself, and the spirit of our boy, and he shared that, that and everybody listening knows this, that humanity is going through an intense and rapid transformation. And so there's a whole lot of baby souls that have carefully scanned, scoured the cosmos and found their way to planet Earth. And they've carefully chosen the perfect families to incarnate into such that all of these families also have connections. And he said the complexity and elegance of the entire web work that is at play is way beyond what I can share with you in a vision right now. And so long story short, he said, look at this huge web work of all of these beings that are wanting to come and incarnate and have a human experience. We're all here to come and blanket the earth with this new state, this new light, this new wave of so much love that is going to transform what it means to be human. And he said, just know that your resistance about bringing me forth as your child is based on a very clear assumption about life as a family, life as a human, life in parenthood. It's based on all these things that are totally wrong. <laughs> and you will realize when I actually come through and be part of the family, I'll have to just, you have to take my word for it. I'll show you this new possibility. That, that many children are going to bring forth in society, not just him. And he said, just so you know, though, if you choose not to conceive me, and he went, disappeared, the entire web work of light, all these souls coming to the planet, just disappeared. He said, so we'll just have to go back to the drawing board because it's not just about me, but about this infinite permutation of souls and families that we've carefully architected. So it's like, no pressure or anything. 
So long story short, he was conceived and he was born at home, beautiful home water birth. And, um, and it was like right from the get-go, I experienced him not as a child. I experienced him as this friend that I made before he was even conceived. We had a rich and deep friendship for months and months and months before he jumped into my belly, so to speak. And then now he's five and a half, and it was only in the last year that he started sharing his side of the story. Wow. Uh, what he remembers about waiting for us, watching us, he describes the previous home that Dave and I used to live in to a T. And he's able to describe how he used to watch us on these screens. He's able to watch us from above on these screens and just see how we live our day-to-day -day life. One of the things he said was like, yeah, I wanted you guys to be my mama and baba because it seemed like really fun. I wanted to see how you do help well at, at my clinic. And I wanted to see baba play tennis and play tennis with him. And, um, and it just all looked like fun. And one day he said, mama, when I was in space and I watched you cleaning the house, I thought that was just a game. I didn't realize that you needed the house clean so much, you know, cause I'm always like, put away your toys. Um, wow. Yeah. That's so really, it's yeah. really fun to hear his side of the story now that he can speak. Yeah. So right now I'm going to totally shift gears. We, we, uh, I mean, there are so many, stories, narratives, even myths that we can make about our current time that, that are, are mutually contradictory. Our society has fragmented into various reality bubbles that seem to have a harder and harder time communicating with each other. And even within individual people, there are like these separate realities. People can snap from one to another to another, not even believing what they think they believe. And it has taken the form of a, a health crisis. You know, I, I mean, I wrote some articles about this that played with our uncertainty and described what various narratives about what's happening feed into. And I still can't say that I've come to a fully crystallized understanding and I can say, okay, here's what COVID-19 is on the level of civilizational initiation or on the level of the body. Uh, I still can't say, okay, here's what's happening. Here's why there's this epidemiological pattern and here's why this, that, and the other thing. And, you know, that encompasses everything I know about viruses and terrain theory and, um, the general decline in health over generations and and the the new kinds of people coming into the world. I mean, like, you know, I can expand it bigger and bigger and bigger, and I still can't say, here's what's happening. And I don't think I want to put you on the spot to say what you think is happening, but I would like to, to give you the opportunity, if you have any information that would be useful to people, and it could be like on a very practical like how to take care of your body in these times level, or it could be more of how to navigate this as a perceiving thinking soul. 
but is there anything that, that maybe just coming from your knowledge base, from your work with patients, you know, is there anything that is coming up for you right now? Well, one of the things that I think um, those of us that are free, free thinking kind of radical types of people, it's easy to go into a reflexive rebellion. I, mm-hmm. I catch myself doing that. And then we miss out on the gift, I think. So that's been a practice for me to, to just not resist reality, not argue with reality. There is a lockdown. There is all these things going on. That doesn't mean you're not going to be part of shifting the conversation and changing the course of how human history goes from here on up, but also at the same time taking maximum advantage of the gifts and opportunities that are available. One of the things about the six-foot social distancing is that those of us that practice Qigong or different kinds of um, energy practices, we're aware that we have an energy field that is approximately six foot in diameter around you. And so this is, you can consider it, you can look at it as a deep meditative retreat where you get to really upgrade your energy field because there's not so much interactions. And then on a maybe less esoteric level, just the fact that doesn't it feel like life was going at such a fast pace that we all have a bit of indigestion? Mm-hmm. So what if this, these are, you know, if you've had indigestion about life, like rushing through life for the last 20, 30, 40, 50, 60 years, what's like one year to slow it down, to really ponder deeply about your life, to reflect, to digest, and to, to clarify how you would like to navigate life for the next chapter. Mm-hmm. Now, what a great gift. This, this slowing down. And then there's the obvious things of how we slowed down and there was the less pollution and all these things that we've seen. Um, and clarifying when we come back together, you know, maybe there's just a lot of um, extraneous things that we don't need to be doing anymore as a society. You know, a yeah. lot of rigidities of structures and a, a better way of, of creating schooling systems, the better it's all these different systems we get to, it takes time to just decompress from the hustle of Mm -hmm. the old world before we can pivot and create the new world. So there's so many opportunities like that. In regards to our health, I wrote this book called Super Wellness because it pained me so much for so many years. It was like an aha moment. And then it was also heartbreaking to see that our world has taken health and twisted it backwards and upside down, just as it has with so many other systems. With regards to health, I kept blowing my own mind over and over again over the course of two decades when I would treat mainly two types of people, like elite endurance athletes who are seeking their highest level of human performance, and then those complex cases where other doctors have given up because it's so complex or it's been deemed incurable. And I kept shocking myself over and over again that the things that delivered by far the best healing results are basically free things. That most of us are spinning our wheels, spending so much money, making our health so unnecessarily complicated, when in fact the most potent and powerful medicines are things like downtime to chill out and do nothing, sunshine during the day, really taking time to immerse yourself in nature, sleeping in complete darkness, breath work practice, learning about hydration, not just not just like how drinking eight 
eight ounce glasses of water a day, but really learning deeply how water works. There's this whole new science of water that many people aren't aware of. And it's a complete game changer if we could understand how water actually works and influences everything in our physiology and also in the planet and in farming practices, so many things. So because there is an economic meltdown, we have this beautiful opportunity to return to that simple understanding that, yeah, actually the most potent, powerful healing medicines are those things that are completely free and abundantly available. That nature is just like overflowing with abundance that we all we need to do is put ourselves in alignment with that abundance. And so I hope that that, because everybody's worried about health, but also they are limited by budget, we're going to shift and realign our orientation with nature and just realize how potent and powerful those free things are in nature. And when we do that, that's going to shift our minds, our emotions, our spirits, and that's going to inform so many things that we do down the line to re-architect all aspects of society. So I'm super excited about that possibility. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The, uh, ironically enough, those, those three things, which are so fundamentally abundant, sunshine, water, and darkness, like, oh, you mentioned downtime also. All of those have become artificially scarce. Like it's really hard to find pure water that hasn't been subjected to bottling and pipes. Uh, you know, most people think of, of water quality as being something that you can chemically analyze, mm-hmm. but you cannot chemically analyze the structure of water that is imbued to it through the process of soaking down through the earth, sitting in these mineral caverns, and then rising to the surface when it becomes ripe for consumption in a spring. You know, that's the kind of water everybody used to drink. But now so much of it has been polluted, you know, and and what is available to us is chlorinated, fluoridated tap water to most people who don't have money to, or who don't like live somewhere, you know, unspoiled. And then darkness is pretty hard to come by. Um, you know, even here, I'm in rural Pennsylvania. It's a lot darker here than most places, but still, you know, there's, there's lights. People have lights on at their farm, you know, there's lights. Um, and, and anyway, I, I'm not being a downer here. Kind of what I'm pointing to is the possibility that a more beautiful world is actually so available to us. It's not something that we have to work hard to achieve. We don't have to invent new inventions to finally graduate to wealth and health, but it's actually a return. And that um, is related to what you were saying about coronavirus. And the way I put it is that it, it is offering an intervention in an addiction where you can finally step back and see the life that you were addicted to that compelled you to live it. Like even theoretically, you knew, well, you know, I could quit my job. I could stop traveling. And that's what it was in my case. I could stop flying around to conferences. You know, I could, but that was like a theoretical possibility in the back of my mind. And now it is, there's like this intervention. Now I feel like I have the choice to, and this is true on a, on a collective level too. If it becomes possible to go back to the way things were, do I want to? 
or what aspects of it do I want to reclaim and what aspects do I not want to? Maybe there's a lot that we don't ever want to go back to. And as you're yeah. saying that I've, I, um, I'm just feeling how kind all of this is that we have the opportunity to slow it way down so that we can clarify all of this. And maybe the universe is really kind that until all of us at least at, reach a tipping point of clarity, enough of us have clarity about the kind of more beautiful world that we want to live in that the lockdown is supposed to continue until we have that clarity. Yeah. What I've, what I've been saying a lot in podcasts, you know, is that the lockdown or, or COVID-19 and the response to it, it's not going to deliver us into a more beautiful world. It's giving us the opportunity to choose that to choose that future, but it doesn't do it for us. Yeah. It's restoring a sovereignty that we can exercise or not. And I think that if we don't exercise it, what we face is permanent lockdown because, you know, COVID-19 has mutated and now it's COVID-20 or now there's, you know, a flu or some other thing. Always a reason to stay safe. And, and maybe there's, you know, things that are more important than minimizing risk. Uh, maybe I'll, I'll invite you to, to share one more thing, anything that's just really with you right now. Um, I, I feel really, uh, I don't know, I'm feeling this wave of sadness, even though I know that when I, when I think about the things that you've shared and the starting with that uh, trillions of, how did you put it? It was so beautiful. Trillions of pieces of love and light. Yeah. Trillions of pieces of love and light. Like I know that when I go over these things in my mind, I will receive medicine that I need. Um, I can finish with the, the story of the first time I met Pachamama. Okay. Please. So when this boy who came to us in dreams and meditations, he was conceived and he was in my belly for some reason, when he was in my belly the whole year, I said, I have to go to Peru. I have to go to Peru. I have to go to Peru. And it just worked out where there was this tour that was a, a friend of a friend's um, has organized these tours. And it's a 10 day tour of beautiful sites like Machu Picchu, Sacred Valley, and, and including a trip to an island called Amantani that is in, on Lake Titicaca. So I was, let's see, seven and a half, almost eight months pregnant. Wow, that's belly. incredible, yeah. yeah. And um, and so Dave and I went on this, I guess you can call it a baby moon, traveling and just hiking up Machu Picchu with this big belly, like, <sighs> you know, high altitude, but it was so beautiful and so much fun and everybody's choking the, the cacao leaf, uh, the coca leaves. But, you know, I was pregnant, so I didn't want that chemistry in my body. So it was a beautiful trip. And as part of the trip, we went to this island called Amantani and there was a a meditation retreat that was baked into the trip. Everybody's so kind and sweet and it was so supportive, but the meditation was, to be honest, kind of like, eh. 
you know, so a lot of the people played hooky and didn't do the meditations because you're on this beautiful island and it's like, I don't know if I'll ever come here again. So we, we didn't do the meditation and we would trek all around this island. Um, Amantani is a small island, I think of, I want to say only like 800 families, mm -hmm. uh, maybe 2,000 people or something. It's quite small, so you can circumnavigate the whole island in just one day. So we would explore the island and, and get to know the local people a little bit. And then at a certain time in the afternoon, each and every day, the meditation teacher would take you to a very specific sacred site on the island. So Dave and I said, oh, shoot, it's time. Let's go back to the hostel and meet up with them because they're going to do this tour. Don't miss the tour. You know, we miss all the meditation, but don't miss the tour. So we went back there and I have this huge belly, my hips, my back, everything's aching from just overdoing it a little bit. So then I follow the group and I'm barely keeping up like <sighs> boulders and, you know, trails going into the sacred site. Then as we get there, I am so cranky and so tired. And I think the tour guide guy could see that I was kind of cranky and tired and needed some help. So he grabbed my hand and helped me kind of like climb those last couple of boulders. And as we got there, the meditation teacher said, this rock is carved in the shape of something like a chair or a throne. It's called the Sion de Inca. And it faces perfectly the sunset and we don't know why it's there, but if they say that some people like to sit in this rock and watch the sunset and have, have a nice um, peaceful meditation. We don't know. The, the lore is that we don't really quite know what this rock is for. So Stefan, the tour guide, grabbed my hand to assist me to get over the last couple humps. Then he puts my hand onto the rock. And I'm not in any kind of meditative state. I was quite cranky in that moment. But the moment the hand touched the rock, this energy overtook me and I found myself sitting on the rock. The moment my butt was on the rock, it was whew, this energy and then faces, 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 so many faces, just thousands of faces of all the beings. I, suddenly I knew that they were the faces of all the beings that had sat on this chair or throne and received a transmission. They were like a lineage of friends or family, just faces, 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 all kinds of genders and colors and ages and cultures across millennia, beings that had received a gift of some kind of transmission on that chair. Then right after that, that it was mandalas, mandalas, colors, geometries, mandalas, 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 and then this column of energy overtook my entire being and right after that Pachamama came in and the experience was like a kind of love that I had never experienced I felt her embracing me with so much love this sweet motherly kind of love and her consciousness, her love is so massive, so vast that I didn't even know what to say to her, except the tears just started pouring. And I just said, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm so sorry. I didn't know what to say, except I'm sorry. 
And I kept turning over in my head all those unconscious ways in which I have, you know, littered the streets or just done thoughtless, unkind things, ruining the planet, just like all the rest of us. You know, I was so embarrassed and felt so sad. And um, with all of, like, the, the apologies just didn't even do it justice for for the unconsciousness that I had been living my life. And she said, no, honey. Oh, no, honey. No, 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 no. Nothing to apologize for, honey. She showed me, like, she, she said, I just am so happy that you've come home. And the communication was something like, the way that I feel now towards our baby who's just starting to eat food. She is six and a half, seven months. She's starting to eat some food. And when she eats, it is like, when she eats, it's like, it's so messy. And then it's so cute. And you love it so much. You love her even more because it's cute and messy. That was the level of love that she has for us, which shocked me. There was not even the tiniest little ounce of guilt or shame or you should be more enlightened than you are she is completely unconditionally loving and then she showed me all these images of every single time that I was in nature and hugged the tree a little bit longer and every single time that I was in nature and just kind of softly caressed a rock and every single time that when nobody's looking and there's a piece of you know Twizzler wrapper on the ground or something. You just didn't even think twice. You picked it up and put it in the rubbish bin. All these little mundane small acts. She said, all of that. I see that. I see every one of these. And every time you go into meditation, you know, so many meditation traditions, we have this idea of, of dropping into meditation, rooting down into the earth, connecting with the earth to quote unquote, visualize yourself getting grounded or visualize yourself sending love and appreciation to the earth. She said, you think that's a visualization? You think that's some kind of guided imagery? That is the truth, the reality, that is the love that I live for. You know, so she really wanted us to recognize that all of these mundane, loving things that we don't realize how potent and how profound that is, that those are all the moments that she delights in, recognizing that, yeah, we do remember her. And that at the perfect moment, just like my toddler will outgrow the slobbering and needing a bib at some point, you know, she'll start not making a mess when she eats. And my boy who always broke everything, you know, cause he's really into like playing with all the mechanical things and he's broken so many computers and these expensive podcasting mics. And it's like, oh my God, the big mess. And now he doesn't do it anymore. And I almost look back on those moments when he was two, three, four, and he used to like break everything around the house with so much tenderness. Mm-hmm. That, that it's just the perfect timing that unfolds where we outgrow the messiness and Pajamama wanted, wanted us to know that she sees that we're growing up and we're growing mm-hmm. up fast. 
and she has no guilt or shame or judgment whatsoever. She just completely loves us unconditionally for exactly the stage of evolution that we're at. Mm -hmm. Eventually, you know, back to the story, I, I was like, wow, that was the most beautiful five minutes of my life. When I opened my eyes, one or two hours had elapsed, the sun has set and my husband is standing there with a towel, like waiting for me to come back so he could wipe the tears down. And fast forward to just these recent times with everything going on in our world. I should say ever since then, if I ask, it somehow opened a portal where I'm able to connect with her again and, and receive this beautiful loving messages from her. And recently with everything going on in our planet, she wanted to share something. So I hope it's okay to share with the audience. Mm -hmm. Go on, please. So it was like, I was just going about my business and I heard her message saying, sit down, I have a message. And so I sit my butt down and then whew, the message came through where she wanted to show us that, you know, when you're doing a cleanup project, like cleaning out your addict or something, that you have to be willing to get into the messiness. And so she wanted to, us to know that she's so proud of us, that we have grown up so much, that we are, so many of us are not wanting to make a big mess on the planet anymore. And she wants us to know how much she loves us for that, that mm -hmm. we're growing as quickly as possible right now. And she sees us fully. And that, that she's also wanting to do some cleaning up and her energy is so vast. Sometimes we think, oh, we've got to save the planet. And, and when I have these dialogues with her, I, I find that sentiment to be quite ridiculous, to be honest, because she is so huge, so vast, she could practically sneeze and, you know, we'd be gone. But because, because of the love, she's gently transitioning in such a way that keeps us well taken care of. And so she said, you know, just like when you're cleaning up an attic or a garage, it has to look more messy before it gets more clean. So beware of where your mind gets stuck and spun out of control into a story just because that one little snapshot in time, that one little moment looks kind of yucky or messy, you know, that actually there's at the end of all of this, there's all this cleanup is kind of like, hey, which toys do you want to keep and which toys do you want to donate or recycle or whatever? So making so as a collaborative effort. And at the end of all of this, there's such a beautiful new reality that is awaiting us if we don't waste too much energy standing there in dismay at like, oh, this is so messy right now. Mm -hmm. you know, it's like, we, we got some work to do. Let's do some cleanup. Let's all of us work together and do some cleanup together. And she shared that, and this is an insight that came later after the transmission. She shares that when you're living in alignment with me, you will always be supported. And later in thinking about what that meant, I was shown like, um, you know, in physics class, when you learn about the waveforms, that if two different waveforms collide together, there is um, constructive interference and destructive interference, right? And so what I was shown was that if we live in harmony with, with nature's wisdom, 
then everything that we do that is in harmony with that is constructive interference. And then it will be nurtured and magnified and supported by her. Anything that is out of harmony with that is going to take care of itself. The more out of harmony with it, the faster it's getting destroyed. So we don't have to stress our little minds over that. That the physics of it is already baked in. And it might just look messy as those old systems are being dismantled because Pajamama, Mother Earth, the planet is already radiating a certain field that is taking care of so much of that. And that our best bet is to focus our efforts and our energies to live in harmony with her. And then all else is taken care of. Thank you for sharing that. I think we are in a uh, transition to uh, adulthood as a species. Whereas for a long time, civilization has kind of taken the mother and her gifts for granted. And now we are, as a collective, moving into a different kind of love where we uh, don't just take. But thank you for that story so much. I could, I could say about it, but I, I, what you said stand on its own. It's really beautiful. Maybe I'll just um, amplify one piece of it, which is that our most humble, invisible actions are more powerful than we realize. Picking up that Twizzler wrapper. I mean, maybe that, if anything saves the world, maybe it's stuff like that. Because now, because every time we do that, Earth is like, oh, they do want to, to grow up. Like every act like that is a prayer. Yes. That, that aligns us with a future in which that in which that attitude is normal. It says, please <laughs> give us this future. Here's, here's a demonstration that I am serious about it. So serious about it that I'll do this even when no one's watching. Even when I don't have a story that tells me that it's important. Uh, well, thank you so much for taking the time sharing your stories if people want to find more about you do they go to your website or what um, do they do yeah you know this was just like a, a friendly storytelling hour and yeah. um and i had a lot of fun chatting but uh, on the 3d surface level of things um i have a chinese medicine practice in san francisco and I also have a book called Super Wellness, which is all of those free, abundantly available self-care practices. We, and we do explore, you know, the book has a few stories, but, um, but it's also packed with a lot of very practical science and research. Mm -hmm. And um, in a former life, before, before, as some people might say, before I turned woo-woo, I um, studied math at 
Harvard. And so we have some similarities. And um, (laughs) (laughs) I worked in software and tech and I had a a short stint in corporate life. So, you know, so I I appreciate having had that background because there's a little bit more like two feet on the earth kind of alignment to what, what I do. And my book is written for an audience that are maybe open to all the woo things, but also are really inspired to read all the actual nitty gritty scientific research as well. Yeah. yeah. So superwellness.com is where you can find um, the book. And then I have an amazing podcast and I look forward to releasing a beautiful conversation with Charles on my podcast. And the best way to find my podcast is the dr.eshow.com. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I forgot. I, I knew that, that you studied math at Harvard and, and somehow that I forgot that until now. Um, so just in case anyone was, wants to say, well, she's woo woo because she's just not that smart, you know, and couldn't hack it in the, in the real world of evidence and logic, you know, um, that, that punctures that theory, I think. Yeah, um, yeah. In another day, I love to explore the conversation of what smart is. Yeah. What kind of intelligence you and I both explore a lot about raising our children in a different way. And I've Mm -hmm. been thinking a lot, like what is intelligence and what like, like IQ, EQ, um, you know, intuitive intelligence, all the levels, physical, critical thinking, even, even like the intellectual part, you know, I have a 24 year old and a 21 year old and neither of them went to college. Uh, It's not because they couldn't get a good score in their SATs. It's that maybe, and maybe they will go to college eventually, but but maybe it's because they have a capacity for independent thought. Maybe times have changed. In our current time, I, I, I noticed that sometimes it seems that the best educated people are the least intelligent and that those who have not been burdened by excessive education have a clearer intuitive uh understanding and ability to to navigate um the confusion so i would love to talk with you again i think we live in a time you know going full circle with our whole conversation we live in a time now where we are being challenged to integrate all those dimensions because it sure is confusing if you look at the world outside of you only listen to one narrative one perspective and you only go into intellectual analysis and Mm -hmm. don't listen to your heart or only go into your emotional or intuitive states and don't listen to logic like we this is a time now where we're being challenged to integrate all those dimensions yeah so lovely i would love to talk to you again yeah thank you so much Thank you so much. This has been a new and ancient story with your host, Charles Eisenstein. I offer this podcast in the spirit of the gift, by which I mean that I don't withhold premium content for a price or put up paywalls or do affiliate marketing or have advertising or anything like that. Instead, I rely on supporters like you. If you would like to support it, you can subscribe at charleseisenstein.net for a small monthly amount, or you can subscribe for free as well. Either way, you get the same content, everything's the same, and you'll be notified every time a new podcast comes out. Also on the site, you can find archived episodes along with everything else that I produce, essays, books, videos, online courses. Thank you very much for listening, and I'll be with you again next time.